on, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Core Consult RX podcast. And tonight, Cole could not make it. We had to do some scheduling, shuffling around due to uh, a mess up on a, an episode that we had, mostly due to me. And uh, so we're re-recording some stuff. And uh, because scheduling was an issue, Cole's not going to be here tonight. So instead of just me sitting here talking to him by myself and being, you know, very boring, uh, I recruited the help of my good buddy and colleague, Alexander Hovey. Alex, what's up, man? First of all, dude, yep. it's Hovey. Right. No, what did I say? You said Hovey. Yeah, that's how everybody no, pronounces dude, it, though. It's, it, it's, yeah, it's, it's Lovey like, like Hovey. I've heard, you, I've heard you say it. Yeah. But it's good to have you on the podcast, man. Thanks, dude. Please state your credentials for the listeners. <sighs> PAC. Yeah. Um, so yeah. so you're like the assistant to the, to the, the physician. physician. Yeah. Very, very cool. So yeah. it'll actually be good to have a different perspective instead of just two... Yeah. It's been pill. fun. It's been fun. Two pill pushers just talking about some stuff. We actually have somebody who knows the diagnosing size on, you know, for a change. That's great. Yeah, it's fun. Yeah, so uh, I've worked a little primary care, emergency medicine, urgent care, orthopedics. Yeah, orthopedics is now right here. Tuck right in this mic. There oh, you my go. Bad, yeah, no. my bad guys. Yeah, this isn't my natural setting. Yeah, <laughs> that's obvious. I'm more of a vlogger. Yeah, for sure. But, but yeah, so what you, you're doing ortho now? Yeah, ortho. I'm still doing some urgent care. How uh, how is that going from doing like more urgent care, like even family medicine, all jumping into ortho? Is that rough? I wouldn't say rough. I've done, I've done, I had some ortho experience in the ER and urgent care. It's just more in depth. Um, the learning, I mean, there was a little bit of a learning curve, like everything, but I would say probably not as much as some of the other, sorry, ortho people, probably not as much as some of the other specialties like cardiology. Yeah. No, that's yeah. cool though. But you had, uh, you, you had, some experience doing at least some joint injections, things like that in the past, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I did I did several CMEs on, on like, joint injections in the primary setting. So I did a lot of that for my patients when I was in that setting. Um, you know, knees, shoulders. Um, I didn't really get into, like, the elbows and the ankles. I guess now I'm starting to learn that kind of stuff. But And are they, do you get to do a lot of, like, or at least assist with a lot of procedures or surgeries and things? Yeah, I just started going in the OR with them. So I, I feel like you, you know, I've known you for long enough now to know you don't sit still very well. So this yeah. is I'm I'm impressed you're doing this podcast, let alone sitting in for a surgery. Is that miserable? Ah, uh, so it's not as bad as I thought it would be because in school I sat through like a lot of cardiothoracic stuff and it was horrible. I was I was going nuts. Um, they were probably like, we got to get this kid out of here. Um, but ortho surgeries are a lot quicker. Like like a total knee is is in like less than two hours. Uh, total hip less than three. So a That's lot of crazy. that. Yeah. So a lot of that stuff. So I can manage. Yeah. Um. But by like the third surgery of the day, I'm like, okay, I'm good. Yeah. I can go back to clinic now. How often are you having to like be in surgery versus clinic? Um. Right so, like, now. Set schedule. Right now. No. Right now, I'm only in one day a week. Uh, um, in surgery. Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. yeah. That's so, cool. Yeah. But, um, I mean, it's cool to see it. Yeah. Um, and the, 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 how are the physicians as far as, like, are they, since you're still new to them, are they still respecting the fact that you have a lot of experience? Or is it, yeah, are they yeah. letting you do a lot of stuff? Yeah, yeah, they're cool about that. That's yeah. good. Yeah, they can tell that, you know. Who's I, done some, some of that. Yeah, and just my knowledge base, too. Like, they'll even sometimes consult me on things that aren't ortho. If they get something and that a patient asks them. They'll just because they're out yeah, of that loop. Yeah, they'll sometimes get, yeah, they'll ask for my opinion, they'll come get me to say, hey, they got a question about this rash or something like that. Yeah. Well, and that's yeah. right up to you. You're the best rash diagnoser. Dude. Yeah, rashes yeah. don't bother you, That's man. good. That's good. That would be bad if they did. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, so tonight we're going to be talking about uh, two different topics, sinusitis, and uh, we're going to focus, obviously, on bacterial sinusitis, and then also bacterial pharyngitis, strep throat, um, we'll go through as well. And so uh, Cole and I had put this together, and we were thinking that one of one infection type would not be enough to go through an hour. So, um, you know, we, we kind of combined the two, and we're also going to uh, do as a, use this as a time to review antibiotics and stuff like that for those of you who are doing more 
on the retail side, it's always good to review some of that stuff. So um, that being said, uh, this is an accredited episode. So for those of you who are members of FreeCE.com and uh, have an unlimited membership, uh, you automatically get access to all of our episodes that are accredited. I think there's over 50 now. And so uh, at some point during the episode, we will give you a password that will unlock the post-activity test at, um, on FreeCE.com's website. And uh, you pass the 10-question multiple-choice quiz, you get your one-hour continuing education credit for pharmacists and nurses. And uh, again, if it's, it's only for people who are free CE members that have an unlimited membership. So if you're not a member, definitely check out their platform. they got all kinds of great stuff, lo- all kinds of different uh, ways to learn, including monographs, live lectures, panel discussions, all kinds of stuff. So check them out. And uh, big thanks to free CE for continuing to work with us and, uh, you know, partnering with two random farm days out there. So big, big thanks to them. So sinusitis, how, how often have you, uh, run into treating that something, you, something you're quite familiar with? Oh man. Anytime someone goes out in the cold weather, they are coming with a sinus infection. How I, I say that in sinus infection. Yeah. Yeah. Well, how often is this, because this is one of the times where like antimicrobial stewardship and all that stuff starts to become an issue. How often do you get into, at least when you were doing urgent care or primary care, did you get into it with patients where you're trying to explain it and they don't really need an antibiotic and they're telling you, no, dude, trust me, I do. Yeah, yeah, all the time. Is that all the time? All the time, yeah, yeah. So, so what, what's the, at some point, is it... You got to have that line of I want to promote antimicrobial stewardship, but I also have to see more patients instead of getting screamed at for the next 30 minutes. Yeah. So, my, uh, I'm not going to fight the patients on it. My approach with that is I explain, um, you know, likely in that first seven, if it's before, you know, 10 days, that it's, it's viral, mm-hmm. you know, majority of the time. So, I explain that to them, educate them on that, kind of talk to them about antibiotic resistance and kind of, you know, I, I will prescribe other things to help out like steroid nasal sprays. Um, if they're not already on antihistamine, I'll, I'll prescribe it um, if they don't have it, um, you know, and then I kind of how I compromise is, hey, if it's not got any better and, uh, you know, by, you know, that you know, by in ten days, I will. You call. You call up the office. I'll call you in some antibiotics for you. Yeah, um, that's a good comment, man. Because yeah. then they know that it's not like get another visit. Yeah, they're not going to charge for another visit. Yeah. Um, and you know, you majority of the time, as long you know, if you're giving them something, and and you're and they know that you'll give them an antibiotic without another visit, uh, if they need it, they don't give you any problems with it. Yeah, that's cool. So sinusitis, like by definition, obviously, is you know, or not definition, but you kind of characterize when we think of sinusitis, we're thinking inflammation of the lining of the paras- paranasal sinuses, right? So rhinosinusitis is really the, the preferred term, although most of us probably do abbreviate it. Um, but rhinosinusitis would be the preferred term just because the, the nasal mucosa is going to be involved um, simultaneously. And sinusitis also is, is something that's going to rarely occur um, without, you know, rhinitis happening at the same time. Um, rhinosinusitis can then be further classified, uh, basically looking at the anatomical site. So like maxillary rhinosinusitis, frontal rhinosinusitis, et cetera. Um, it can be um, classified into the, based on the uh, pathogenic organism causing it, so viral bacterial fungal. Um, if there's any type of a complication present, so orbital, intracranial, for example, and then also other associated factors, nasal, uh, nasal polyps, um, you know, suppression, anatomical variants, things like that. So, you know, again, making sure that we're getting the patient classified with the right diagnosis also can affect uh, reimbursements and some of that stuff as well. But that's on your side. That's all your your favorite ICD-10 ICD coding yeah. and everything, right? Yeah, exactly. You're really good at that. Dude, I remember. I, I was good, man. You they, were always, they, 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 they never got art, like uh, written up or anything for not closing your charts. Dude, that's different than not closing the chart. That's different than getting the right code. I was like ninety percent on Cody myself. Yeah, that's that's good. I was that the is best. pretty good. She was excited. Yeah, that is pretty good. Yeah. So when we're talking about you know sinusitis, there's not like necessarily a 
a agreed upon definition. It's it's kind of based on the clinical symptoms, signs, the history yeah. of the patient's acute you know situation. So, what do you do? You have like a certain thing that you follow, or you just kind of go patient by patient? Um, I mean, as, as yeah, I mean. I do if if I know the patients, I'll start to do a little patient to patient. But like in more an urgent care setting, um, without like a significant history, either reported by the patient or if we already have you know a medical record on them, um, I, I do stand pretty firm to that. You know, seven to ten days mm-hmm. before you know before I'm going to consider antibiotic treatment for them. Um, you know, they obviously have you know if the, if they are tender and the sinuses, they they obviously have a sinusitis, but it's you know, it's vi- by definition, it's most ans- likely yeah, viral. It's most likely viral. Yeah. yeah. The uh, are, are you checking out um, anything else as well? Like, are you, like, are you listening for like respiratory issues? Um, any yeah. kind of systemic stuff going on? Yeah, yeah. Usually with anything ENT, I'm gonna listen to the heart and lungs. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, and I'll palpate the neck as well, um, and I'll look at the oropharynx. And, you know, most acute situations, obviously, like Alex was saying, it's seven to 10 days and, and a lot of them are self or kind of self-limiting based on the fact that they're viral. But if they do need antibiotics, they're still going to be taken care of fairly quickly. Um, now, there can be situations where the patient has like a subacute sinusitis, which would be like this temporal progression of symptoms that can go on for four to 12 weeks. And, you know, that could eventually turn into after that 12 week mark be classified at that point into chronic sinusitis, which was obviously where you're having persistent symptomology and it doesn't always correlate with exacerbations along the way, but it can, it can. Um, That's different though than recurrent acute sinusitis. So if it's a recurrent sinusitis, then it's, you know, by definition, two to four episodes of infection um, within a year, but they have to have at least eight weeks in between episodes to know that that person didn't just you know, not get rid of the previous infection. And then also the sinus mucosa needs to kind of completely normalize between those attacks in order to be listed as a recurrent situation. All right. So um, most patients in, you know, the primary care setting, it, you know, is where they're going to be treated for this type of situation. There, there are certain situations where maybe you need to be um, evaluated by a uh, otolaryngologist. Yeah, no, I like to, I like to use otolaryngologist because I want to see if I can pronounce that word and I couldn't. So, <laughs> so, <laughs> so ENT, ENT. Um, no, but uh, in sitting someone in ENT, uh, maybe you wanted if the patient has this continued deterioration, you know, that's occurring, even though they're on appropriate antibiotics if they're having multiple recurrent episodes, if the symptoms have persisted after you've tried two different, you know, courses of antibiotics, if they have some sort of immunodeficiency, and um, you know, or if there's a chance that it could have been a nosocomial infection, and um, also if there's certain complications, obviously present that may uh, make you send them to a specialist a little quicker. All right. Um, or if they're annoying. Yeah, or that's yeah, exactly. Thank you. That's I forgot about that part. Punt them. Yeah, it's just uh, actually we're gonna send you right to. <laughs> I got a good guy. Yeah, he's great. He's gonna love you. Um, so sinuses typically sterile under physiologic conditions. Um, secretions produced in the sinuses are gonna flow um, by the ciliary action through the ostea and drain into the nasal cavity. And so a patient who is healthy, those sinus secretions flow in one direction towards the ostea, which is going to prevent that back contamination of the sinuses. However, if those out, if that outflow gets obstructed, um, which is one of the, the key factors that can result in rhinosinusitis, gets abstracted, obviously that uh, drainage pathway is going to no longer be flowing the way it's supposed to, and you can have a backup of, of bacteria, especially if there is if if the you know, mucus that's getting trapped is is uh, infected, and then you have also cases of ciliary impairment, and then um, if there's any kind of like alterations to the mucus quantity or quality, so excessive mucus production, or if there um, is actually changes to the makeup of it itself, that can also uh, put the patient at higher risk for developing an infection. So the obstruction, you know, that can occur doesn't always happen from, you know, just like a, just like a like a genetic or a you know 
birth defect or something like that. Or it could be from trauma, someone's breaking their nose or something like that that's causing, um, obviously, uh, damage and swelling to the, the local mucosa. Um, rhinitis, even though, you know, can cause some swelling and edema issues. Um, mechanical obstruction from nasal polyps, foreign bodies. Deviated septums. Exactly, yeah. Um, tumors can, uh, can also lead to osteoblockage as well. And then the ciliary action, because I always think of ciliary, I think of the lungs. Lungs, yeah. And, you know, but they obviously can, are present in the, the sinuses as well. And um, they can have impaired, uh, their action can be impaired by, you know, genetic factors, um, pa- patients who smoke. So, again, thinking of the lungs is what we kind of always focus on. But you can also sort of paralyze the cilia and the um, nasal sinuses too, which is going to make you more susceptible to getting infected um chemical toxins dehydration patients who are on multiple anticholinergic drugs obviously all those things can can limit uh cilia function and then also um, exposure to bacterial toxins so for example if a patient had some sort of a dental abscess or dental procedure um and and that resulted in communication between the oral cavity and the sinuses um, you can get a cross infection and end up having uh, some some issues and then you mentioned cold air but uh, cold air is said to stun the ciliary epithelium, to, is uh, what UpToDate tells us. So leading to impaired ciliary movement and retention of secretions in the sinus cavity. So it turns out cold air is not great for your cilia. Yeah. So you, you rain, nailed it. Rain, too, man. Yeah, you, rain, you nailed rain it. Rain and cold air, that deadly combination. So, <laughs> so uh, you mentioned that uh, most of the cases are viral. So what are you thinking of, like, virus-wise? Um, typically, I mean, if you're, if are we thinking of, I mean, you, there's, you know, co- the Corona coronavirus, I mean, COVID-19 is one of them. Um, but yeah, just regular coronavirus species, um, flu A and flu B can give, can, will give you a viral sinusitis, um, parainfluenza viruses, um, RSV for, I mean, adults can get that too, but we see that big time in the kids. Mm-hmm. Um, um, yeah, and then obviously rhinovirus being the most like prevalent cause, but the, all of those definitely need to be evaluated. And um, some of the reason why you'll see some patients getting uh, on like even like ulcer stuff like that for um, the viral uh, yeah causes. In you know about half of a percent, up to two percent of cases that uh, you know of a patient who has a vi- viral sinusitis it progresses to bacterial. So like Alex was saying, most of the time it's going to be self-limiting and, and, you know, that seven to day, you know, seven to 10 day course, you'll, you should start seeing a turnaround of symptoms. But if it's, if it's not, then obviously it may have it either progressed or it was bacterial the whole time. And, uh, you know, um, now you have to treat it as such. So bacteria that can cause Sinusitis. We're typically thinking from a gram-positive standpoint, strep pneumo, uh, pretty much the same with like all of our respiratory type yeah. uh, infections. I feel like this gram-positive, we're always thinking about strep pneumo. And then from a gram-negative standpoint, our respiratory gram-negative bugs like uh, Haemophilus uh, influenza and MCAT. Yeah. Yeah. It's less commonly, um, you may see patients that have acute sinusitis that's due to strep, uh, so strep pyogenes, even staph aureus can cause it in some cases. Um, anaerobes have also led to uh, um, sinusitis in more rare cases. And then from a nosocomial standpoint, um, some of the gram-negative bugs that have been known to cause nosocomial sinusitis, we have our ever uh, ever dreaded pseudomonas, um, E. coli, proteus, um, Klebsiella pneumoniae, uh, Enterobacter species, so lots of different things. I mean, all of those that I just mentioned make up about 60 or over 60% of cases of nosocomial sinusitis. The rest would be some of the gram positives that can do it. So lots of different bacteria to think about. And um, it's one of those situations where we still always want to have to keep in mind the, the spectrum of activity of, of our antibiotics so that we're, even if we are going to treat them, uh, even if we're not, maybe not hundred percent sure if they, if they need antibiotics or not, if we, if we do move forward with treating them and, uh, you know, we want to treat them with the least, um, amount of coverage possible that would still get the job done. So some things to consider, um, and this kind of goes back to that seven day situation, like, um, like I almost called you Cole, like Alex was just talking about. Um, but the Don't 20, be disrespectful, dude. no, yeah, you should, you're, you should be, feel very respectful for, uh, get or respected for getting to sit in Cole's seat. How dare you? Thanks Cole. 
<laughs> but uh, <laughs> thanks for letting me giving me the uh, opportunity to do this on a Sunday night, dude. Okay, first of all, this dude, is a big, I just said is, thank you. This is a big opportunity I for said you. Thank you. You know what? Why don't you tell us about the 2015 American Academy of Otolaryngology Head and Neck Surgery Foundation guidelines? Well, they should have updated it by now, no. but they haven't. They're well, behind. They're behind. It's okay. So go on about it now. No, I wanted you to tell us because you because because of your sarcasm, dude. Go ahead. <laughs> no, you got it. I want to hear. Um, I'm actually really curious dude, to hear your voice now. Dude, I'm trying. I'm re- I'm trying. I'm working on the new guidelines. You know, with You're some, not some of my working. colleagues. Yeah, I bet. I bet they're. I bet you're getting a lot of input. All right. So in the if the patient fails to improve with initial management option, yeah, you know, whether that was symptom control, like Alex was saying, uh, or if you know if the patient was given antibiotics for you know whatever reason, after uh, seven days, if the patient I said that is already, but uh, I know I'm readdressing that it was in the guidelines. See, this is why we can't have you on the show more often. <laughs> <laughs> I said seven to ten days. I- I was following guidelines. You were. I was very impressive. I was actually shocked to see you were following them. <laughs> no, but uh, the um, if the patient does not get any better, then you do want to obviously confirm that it was, in fact, bacterial uh, rhinosinusitis and, and exclude any other causes of illness that could be um, taking place. Also, distinguishing chronic sinusitis and recurrent acute sinusitis from you know isolated episodes of acute sinusitis and other causes is a, an important thing to kind of have down on a patient who you're seeing multiple times for this. And then also um, assessing patients with chronic sinusitis uh, as well as recurrent um, for multiple chronic conditions that would modify their management or you would require their management be modified. So asthma, um, some kind of immunocompromised state, um, cystic fibrosis obviously would be a big one. And then um, they also recommend that clinicians should not obtain um, imaging unless patients meets like specific diagnostic criteria where they are worried about complications or, you know, there's an alternative diagnosis that's being suspected. So um, imaging is usually overkill. I I think I've maybe ordered imaging once or twice. What made, what made you, do you remember like what made you want to do imaging? Um, I, I, well, it was, um. I know one one was in the ER. I mean the the urgent care setting actually, and we had actually had CT there. Um, but they had been in multiple I times, mean, multiple times, and this time they were. I mean they looked like they were in pain, and it was all like frontal. Um, you know, so at that point, you know, is it is it you know intracranial thing or is it you know a do horrible you, sinus? Do infection? you remember like what and what it ended up being? Oh, it. I mean it. It would. It ended up getting. It was. A sinus infection, but yeah, it had started entering into the the intracranial space. Mm. Yeah, and yeah, it was um, yeah, it was it was bad. They had to be admitted and stuff. really get IV antibiotics. Yeah, I, I don't know what what it was. I never we weren't able to follow up to see what it was that was actually causing the 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 infection. But yeah, yeah, yeah that makes sense. Yeah, but yeah, I think it was, that was the one time. But yeah, they were in pain. It was. Yeah, it was kind of it was disturbing to see it 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 go from you know a regular yeah, sinus infection yeah and just to that yeah yeah and I don't remember if they had been they were like an HIV patient or not I don't I don't remember them being immunocompromised or anything but yeah, it just might have been yeah uh, they got a bad, bad bug luck. yeah uh, wasn't it I think we had told the story um, me and Cole had told the story about uh, that really bad UTI that we had gotten at at Fetter, um, that was like resistant to every single thing except like carbapenems is what, like they Dude, ran was, against. I, I think that was one of my nursing home patients that I. No, I think that was that was a fungal thing that we you and I had yeah. done with that. But I remember uh, there was or a patient had that, that, in the that had too. a yeah a really resistant UTI yeah. that they had to getting admitted for. But I'm thinking now that we're saying that, I'm thinking that might have been you. Yeah, I don't know. It was like a lot. It was a long time ago. But uh, yeah, so if you do have a patient, you've diagnosed them with with sinusitis, obviously, we, if we're going to give them treatment for just kind of, you know, symptom control, uh, there's a few different options. Obviously, we have like our non pharmacological things we could look for um, humidifiers, vaporizers, um, warm compresses, especially if they're just having any like you know swelling in the sinuses or you know discomfort um, making sure the patients are staying adequately hydrated and then um, smoking cessation is should be encouraged if they are a smoker um, we, we typically are going to encourage smoking cessation at every visit if we're seeing someone for like a routine you know what you know kind of follow-up appointment for their for their primary care but if you're in an urgent care setting and they're not feeling great maybe this isn't the best time to bring up smoking cessation yeah I- 
I, that's kind I, of like you, one of those I ask the question things. and it's yes or no, and then you leave I it alone. Yeah, leave it alone. Yeah. So and, unless I've seen him in that setting several times, yeah. I'll tell him it's smoking's not helping. But <laughs> yeah, that's true. I mean, it's, it's probably a good. I mean, it's a good thing if you see him multiple times and you can kind of at least say, like, yeah, look, yeah, you know, you're setting yourself up for failure. Yeah. Now, um, you mentioned antihistamines, um, you know, previously, and I, I've I've seen plenty of antihistamines be used in this setting as well. Um, and I, I pretty, I'm sure I've also recommended antihistamines in this setting. Um, some of the guidelines do actually say though, that based on the evidence that's available, um, not that they recommend not, um, giving antihistamines and not to say that they're, they're harmful, although there, there is a chance because of their anticholinergic effect that you can cause like an overdrying of the nasal mucosa. Which I've actually, I see that a lot. Actually. Really? Yeah. And, well, and, and, you know, that's... Makes sense. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's drying up the... I, I guess it depends on, you know, did you fix their, their you know, post-nasal drip and all the issues they were having because of that, yeah. but then just go too too far the other direction but um i'll say which one do you want man yeah exactly <laughs> can't have your cake and eat it too <laughs> which is such a dumb expression isn't it <laughs> it makes that, no it makes, makes no sense, sense. Makes yeah no sense. yeah I've, I've never understood that i'll well, have to come up with a new one yeah oh well well we will hold our breath but uh but the antihistamines you know you, there's obviously intranasal antihistamines or oral but because the data isn't you know doesn't suffice to show a true benefit um that's why the guidelines aren't recommending them so remember their guidelines, they have to recommend things that have actually shown positive benefit. Just because something hasn't shown a benefit doesn't mean it's necessarily harmful. It just, you know, so they, they yeah. can't recommend it. So take that for what it's worth. Um, one thing you do, you know, want to at least consider if they're having a lot of congestion is the um, oxymetolazine, afrin. Yeah. That can really help from a very quick onset yeah. of action. It can really help. It's good to, stuff. Yeah, decrease that mucosal edema. Get addicted to it, though. Immediately. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you can't use it for too long. Th three days is what I usually tell people. Um, That's, yeah. I, I've heard, like, you can get four or five days, but I'm, I just tell I, people three, and I'm like, let's call it a day with that. Yeah, I, I've heard five as well, but I say three. Yeah. yeah. Have you known people that have gotten, like, a completely – hooked on tour that had that horrible oh, rebound dude. i i had this one this one old dude in in the uh independent living and he was always he was always complaining of sinus issues sinus issues and i was like and he's like he's like i take my allergy medicine it's antihistamine he's like i've been using my spray and i was like it's like flonase or nasacort and he's like no no it's afrin and i was like wait how long have you been using the afrin oh over a year and I was like, over a year? Oh. I was like, and you know what? He's still on it. He won't get off. He it. just he refuses. He's 86. He's, That's true. He's not listening to me. If you're 86 and you have, you know, Whatever. a 30-something-year-old yeah. telling you what to do, you're not listening. There's zero yeah. percent chance we're going to do that. Especially when you look 22. Who, you? That's yeah, true. Yeah. But not in like a good, not like in a, a good way. Like, because it's just like, maybe you have like a, you know puberty issue <laughs> <laughs> a hormone you got a hormone problem people are like yeah he's never talked to one of his guests like that if you, if you guys can't tell this is one of my really good buddies so it's okay it's not normally a normal guest that i would ridicule but uh but yeah alex uh, alex is used to it but one i feel like this is the you mentioned the nasal steroid um i, I always tend to like think of that being allergic rhinitis but they absolutely can help in the short term as well yeah and yeah. and there's even some data showing kind of that if you're giving them for 15 to 21 days uh, that you will improve symptom you know yeah, yeah symptoms faster and then you know that's compared to placebo so it is something that is an option and there's a whole bunch of different formulations out there um, there's rhinocort, which is budesonide, there's trimcinolone, there's fluticasone, there's mometasone, um, and most of them are over-the-counter now. I think maybe um, the Q-nasal and Zetana are the only two that aren't. But, um, you know, for the most part, we kind of think of them as being interchangeable. Um, mobenazone, I know, is something that a lot of people use. I think that's the one the up-to-date authors recommend. But um, about 15 to 21 days. And, again, it's not going to fix the symptoms super quick, but it uh, after a couple of days, it should alleviate some of that inflammation and whatnot. Yeah. Um, what about ipotropium? Do you ever uh, see? Because I feel like I've just recently had a, a bunch of patients because I've been doing, like, chronic care management where – I'm dealing more with like chronic allergic rhinitis or, you know, yeah, I, I, I do see like if they're going to ENT, I'll see that on that med list. Yeah. And I'll ask them about it and that's what they're taking it for. 
because I mean, I'm sure all of you are familiar with ipratropium from a you know inhalation nebulized standpoint, but um, it is a nasal spray formulation as well, and and it, because of its anticholinergic effects, it's not necessarily going to help with the inflammation aspect of it or help with you know the um, any allergy type um, issues that are going on, it's causing some of the inflammation, but it definitely can help um, from just an overall uh, like drying effect. So if you're having really bad post nasal drip, um, you know, and you're on a steroid that's maybe helping, but you're not full resolution of symptoms, um, you could add ipatropium to it. Is at least at bedtime, maybe help with some of that post nasal drip. Side effect wise from the um, steroids, I would do want to mention this too. Um, going to going back to them real quick, but uh, the local irritation, you know, drying effect, burning, discomfort, things like that are what people will oftentimes um, complain about. Sometimes you will hear about like like a burning sensation when you're having like the runoff or you know post nasally down the throat, and it really if you're experiencing that, you want to watch out for formulations that have alcohol or propylene glycol. So they can be more irritating than like the more aqueous preparations. So like Q-nasal, um, Flonase, Zatanna, all of those contain alcohol, Beclonase. So one of the other um, mometasones or one of those would be a better option so you're not experiencing that. How about, uh, this is a good question for, uh, since you did it, with primary care, you were seeing a ridiculous amount of patients every day. How many patients have you seen that, do like shit like had their head completely tilted back when they try to administer oh, nasal spray. Oh, so many, so many. You have to. That is a question I I got better at ask about asking because a lot of times you don't think about that. And then you know, one day, you know, I, don't, I forgot where I was reading about it that people weren't doing that. And then I started asking patients, you know, if they'd come back. And so the spray is not working. Ask them and. So more than half of them, they're not doing it right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, and I started, like, even if they're already established on it, and they're, I'm asking them about their symptoms and, you know, seeing if, hey, you know, if their symptoms are controlled, if there's any residual symptoms left over, that's the first thing I'm asking them about is, like, well, how, how are you actually using yeah. it? I'm going to switch over. For those of you who are watching the video um, version of this, you can kind of see my screen here, but this is a, uh, like a patient handout that I found that it shows the, the person kind of leaning his head forward. Cause really that's, you want to tilt your head forward. Um, that will kind of line up your, uh, um, it'll line up your, your sinuses a little bit better from the, for the nasal spray is actually being administered. And so, um, holding the spray bottle upright, you almost want to like, aim the bottle away from the midline and um, away from the, the septum and that will allow uh, it to, to flow a little bit better and you don't actually want to breathe in like you know sniff in super d deeply or anything like that um, you just can breathe normally and just kind of you know yeah. take my it preferred in. way is, is on the knees like that I was going to say so there's if again if you're watching the video version there's there's kind of like the normal nasal spray and these nasal drops where I guess you got to like drop them you have to have a lot more uh, weird. I don't know who's doing all these things. I don't even know. There's a lot of one person's just bent over, like his head's almost to the floor, and he's standing up. And I just looks. I, like, I make my patients do that one. Yeah, I mean, that, that looks like it doesn't work at all. No, but, uh, he's yeah. so uncomfortable. Yeah. So I don't know what that's about. But the moral of the story is making sure that you're telling patients to um, administer the the nasal sprays correctly. What about neti pots? Do you ever, or any kind of saline irrigation? Do you have patients that have gotten, like with more chronic sinusitis, that have gotten some relief from that? Man, there <coughs> you have a following with the neti pots. Um, like they, they. Oh, I thought you meant me personally. No, I was like, no, oh, wow, no, do ne I? Neti pots got a following. Yeah. They got a following of people that. It's a cool they're, device. They're obsessed with it too. The people yeah. that like it, like they'll, they'll do it multiple times a day. And I'm you like, have I don't, one. I don't. Do you they, have one? I don't have one. I've never done no it. No neti pot? I've never done it. Either. I can't get it to work right. I, I think it's because I've had my nose broken a few times. I can't yeah, get it to like drain just, up my sinuses. Like getting water up my nose, so I feel like I wouldn't, wouldn't like enjoy that. it. Yeah, yeah. It wouldn't be pleasurable. But a lot of patients, they swear by it. And I I mean, it gives them relief for sure. When, yeah. But some some of them get obsessed with it and they do it too much. I'm like, all right, can't can't do it too many times. And I haven't seen any like solid data that shows that it actually reduces the rate of like recurrent infections or anything. yeah I, I don't think i've seen anything either I, I think it's it's just relief yeah i think it's more of an acute it's thing blowing but, your nose. but yeah the people who are i've seen patients who are doing it like every single day or twice a day or something yeah. just yeah it seems like you're drying it out yeah. so much yeah yeah 
Yeah. It's, it's just setting you up to get that mucosa to get irritated. And it does seem like you could just use the the sinus rinse bottle. Like you don't need the genie lamp, right? No, like that's you just get you're showing off at that point. Yeah. If you do have a patient though that has never used it in any pot or any kind of a sinus rinse, you know, if they are thinking about trying that, then the one super easy thing to remind patients of that is oftentimes overlooked is reminding them to use distilled water um, and not just tap mm-hmm. water. Obviously, tap water is no big deal if you're drinking it um, and going into the stomach. However, your your sinuses and you know your brain is not intended to block out certain amoebas and things like that. There have been case reports of um, I don't know if it was the neti pot specifically, but um, sinus rinses with tap water causing issues like uh, amoebas getting into the brain, yeah. and nobody wants that. No, that's uh, have you ever heard? Have you ever seen anything like that in person? Like, or not in person, but like in a case that you've worked with? I, I haven't, but I. I... I know that, uh, like, down here in South Carolina, there's, like, usually every year, there's a few people, they're, like, jumping off, like, that bridge into yeah, the river yeah, and stuff they're, in the summertime. Yeah, nose. water goes up, and they get those amoebas, yeah. yeah. Dude, could you imagine, like, if you jump in, the pluff mud goes up your nose, like, you know, like, oh, I got so many amoebas in my nose. I would just be waiting. <laughs> yeah. You know. I would just find it. I'd, I'd design a new cure. Probably. And I would find a way to beat it against all odds. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> So, yeah. You'd be dead the next day. No, dude. It didn't, t- it didn't even get to your brain. It- <laughs> no, I would I would beat it. But um, that, that, would, that, would, it. that would be 100% like terrifying if that happened. Oh, it would be. If you jumped in the water and you, yeah, because you'd know, like, yeah, you'd, you'd have you'd, no yeah. idea until it's too late. Yeah. Yeah, I, that'd be no good. I don't, I won't even jump in the ri- rivers during the summer anymore now that I know about those amoebas. Yeah, I won't either now that we've talked about it. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good idea. It's safety first. Yeah. So if we are going to treat with antibiotics, so let's say we've gotten past the, the 7 to 10 day mark, especially 10 days, if, if you're still having clinical symptoms at that point, and it's definitely time for antibiotic at that point. Um, you know, if the patient is earlier than the 7 to 10 day mark, but they have, you know, severe symptoms with a high fever, you know, if it's over 102 Fahrenheit. I would, yeah, I would probably give them the antibiotic, yeah. Especially if they're having like permanent nasal drainage, facial pain, um, is that, I mean, you pretty much have a safe bet, right? Yeah, and yeah. You I'm can move forward. The, I'm giving the benefit of the doubt. And I'm giving the antibiotics. The other thing you could consider is if they had these symptoms that have come about after, you know, a, a upper respiratory infection, you know, and, and maybe could have come from that uh, pathogen. So yeah. that may be a reason to start antibiotics a little quicker as well. But if we do need to get on antibiotics, um, then, you know, there's a few different options. And really, the, like we said earlier, we kind of want to start with the most narrow spectrum. And patients who, who have un, uncomplicated, you know, that require antibiotics, first thing, do they have a penicillin allergy or not? If, if they do not have a penicillin allergy, then the next thing would be, um, you know, okay, can we safely say that there is no pneumococcal resistance or risk of a poor outcome in this patient. And if that's the case, then we can move forward with amoxicillin either by itself, three times a day if the 500 milligram dose, you could do amoxicillin 875 twice a day. Um, and you can also do um, clavulonic acid in combination with amoxicillin, so the augmentin. Yeah, that's usually what I go to. Yeah, and, and you know, the, again, you have to be really sure that the patient doesn't meet any of the criteria for any type of poor outcome or pneumococcal resistance before just jumping to something like plain amoxicillin, which I feel like most of the patients you're going to interact with. What, I mean, so for some examples, um, patients who are 65 years of age and older, patients who, you know, live in an area where we know strep pneumo has a resistance rate of um, exceeding 10%. If they've been hospitalized in the last five days, have they had any antibiotics in the past month? Are they immunocompromised in any way? Do they have multiple comorbidities? cardiac, diabetes, hepatic, renal, um, and then also severe infection like we talked about. Um, that would be a reason why we, we may need to go uh, a little bit more uh, intense with the medication dosing, and we're definitely going to do the broad-spectrum augmentin at that point and not even think about just our plain beta-lactam. Now, let's switch it to the other side. Let's say they do have a penicillin allergy. Patient's Chart says penicillin. Um, we'll talk about what you know if that's even a concern in the first place as far as other options. But you know we we probably wouldn't go with an amoxicillin or something if they have a penicillin allergy. Um, 
but can they tolerate a cephalosporin? You know, most of the time that's going to be a yes. And if they can, then we would use one of our most likely our, one of our third generation cephalosporins. Um, you could use cefexime, uh, you could use cefpidoxime, and then you could also using it in combination with clindamycin. So if you're worried about um, resistance, yeah, beta-lactamase yeah. resistance, then, um, you know, you can consider clindamycin as well. But if they, you know, are not able to tolerate cephalosporins because, you know, either you're not aware of how to how to handle the, the information with the penicillin allergy and you're just, just going to uh, kind of apply the cross-reactivity uh, risk across the board to cephalosporins as well, then, you know, you may want to just go with doxycycline as an alternative option. That's that's one that uh, is, is being used more and more nowadays in like respiratory type situations, infections. So uh, those are all of the different options. And uh, like I said, as, as far as the, you know, the, you know, selection of, of medications, it depends on patients' risk factors and then, you know, what, what they can tolerate. Always consider like their um, comorbid conditions and whatnot. And then also too, if they do have a penicillin allergy, and I've, I think I've mentioned this on previous podcasts before, but if they do have a penicillin allergy, then you have to consider, or you really only have to consider that the risk of a cross-reaction with the cephalosporin. I'm going to switch to my computer screen too, for those of you watching the video. But if they have uh, the same side chain or the R group um, off of the base of the, the chemical structure of the, the drug, so for example, amoxicillin has a unique R group side chain. Uh, there's a few different cephalosporins that have identical side chains to amoxicillin. Those are the ones that would most likely cause a reaction, an allergic reaction to both. So amoxicillin um, has the same side change as cefdroxyl, um, uh, cefprozole as well. And then ampicillin has identical side chains to cephalexin, cefaclor, um, and, you know, that's a couple others as well, but those are the two most common ones. Um, Cepiridine, um, cefiridine, I mean, um, I, can't, I can't even pronounce that word tonight. But those are all ones that have identical side chains to ampicillin. That's a hard one, dude. It is. Thank you. Yeah. And if you, if, if the patient is... Like, so for example, amoxicillin is most likely, if you have an allergy to amoxicillin, most likely going to be just fine with cephalexin. So, yeah. and that's, there's a cool chart on the UpToDate's website that has um, that breakdown if you want to take a look at that. But yeah, so all that being said, beta-lactam is definitely um, you know, one of the main options that we use. And then uh, we still have to think about the patient's, you know, renal function. If they have a renal function that's uh, less than 30, we can't use the amoxicillin 875 dose. Um, we have to think about all the GI issues that could potentially arise. And, you know, from a doxycycline standpoint, you know. Oh, have you been on doxy? Oh, yeah. Oh, man. I was on it for a long time that, for acne and stuff. That tear, that would tear my stomach up. Oh, yeah. No, for sure. So many people. I'm like, dude, you better eat with this. If I don't take it with food, I, I remember this yeah. vividly. I would be like an hour later, I'd be like almost ready to vomit, if not vomit. Oh, I, I would vomit. So, yeah, take it with food. Photosensitivity, also a big yeah, deal. That, um, makes your skin really sensitive. Have you ever seen it? Uh-huh. You saw the, the photosensitivity? Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I, I was, the first time I saw it, I always would tell patients, but I hadn't seen it. First time I saw it, I was like, "Oh my god!" It was it literally looked like you're talking about like the skin, like sensitive, like hypersensitivity yeah, reaction, like not I, just I, like they, they you burn more easily. Yeah, no, they fell asleep in the sun for like an hour on the beach, and it literally looked like someone had poured like hot oil on their skin. Jeez. It, I mean, it was just sloughing off. I was like, "Oh, that's terrible." Yeah. So yeah, doxycycline uh, has its its fair share of things to at least counsel patients on, but um, definitely a good option nonetheless. Um, make sure you take it, tell them to take it with food, and then also keep in mind that it does have an interaction with like multivalent cations. And so if the patient is um, taking like calcium, you know, in the form of tums, even uh, if they're taking magnesium, uh, anything like that that could potentially potassium, anything that could potentially be multivalent cation, um, take that two hours before four or six hours after the doxy so you don't inhibit the uh, absorption of it. Clindamycin, um, you know, keep in mind too that if we do add this on, like we talked about, you can use it in combination with one of the cephalosporins. Uh, it does carry C that box diff. warning for C. diff. Yeah. And although we don't really see it causing as much C. diff anymore because it's really just not widely used like it used to be, it doesn't, it doesn't mean that it doesn't have that risk anymore. And so if you add that, you know, clindamycin to the cephalosporin, it, it can definitely increase the risk of C. diff, although it does give you that little bit more of an extended spectrum of activity. But, uh, but yeah, so lots of different options there. Um, 
you know, do you, what do you, what are you thinking if you have a patient that you've given them augmentin to and symptoms didn't, you know, exact same symptoms didn't have any better? Do you have like a go to that you switch to? Um, so, you know, you know, you can do like I know, like the you know, you you can still go to like you macrolides and uh, fluoroquinolones, but the fluoroquinolones, yeah, yeah. and you know, there, but you know, there's some resistance there, but I, fluoroquinolone, but you just got to be a little careful, you know, with like some of those, like an active young adult or yes. kids with those tendon injuries, um, you know, but it's a, it is a good, it's a good additional option, yeah, um, to for go sure. To. I, yeah, and I mean, obviously, the first thing if they're coming back without any improvement is you'd want to confirm the, the diagnosis, is, mm-hmm. you know. And so, once that's been confirmed, and you're not necessarily worried about complications or anything, if you are, obviously, then you need to escalate there, you know, and send off to for a referral to a specialist. But if you're not worried about complications and you're going to continue kind of treating the patient on your own, then you know, looking at whatever you used first um, would dictate whether you try a different you know alternative so you could still use at this point augmenting the high dose augmenting the the 2000 milligrams of amoxicillin for 125 milligrams of uh clavulonic acid the extended release tablets um you could do a flick like uh, alex said you could do a respiratory fluoroquinolone so levofloxacin moxifloxacin and then you could also consider that cephalos third center third generation cephalosporin or clinton plus plus clindamycin if you haven't yeah. done that already and then doxy if you haven't tried that already if again, same thing, improvement in seven to ten days, great. If not, um, at that point, you probably would want to get imaging done after two failed courses of antibiotics. Yeah. <coughs> All right. So if 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 their sinus infection cleared after ZPEC, they probably did not have a bacterial. Sinus yeah. Infection. Yeah. I was gonna say notice. Yeah. Notice that we barely didn't. Uh, we we didn't I, even I, really mention macrolides at this point, as far as like on the the algorithm. Yeah. I've only seen it, it in combo. Yeah. With, with a few for, from the ENTs have like thrown it in there. Mm, and yeah. I, I don't know if they were throwing it in there. Maybe for the inflammation yeah, you know, I mean, aspect or something. I, yeah. You know, I guess, I guess some, a lot of people who have large rhinitis who, who are going to see ENTs are more susceptible to sinus infections, but also they're that triad, they're a little more likely to have asthma. So mm, they yeah, might yeah. be using it for that. Yeah. But, you know, lots of different options there. And you can most likely find one that will will fit with the patients you know different comorbidities and whatnot um alex talked about some of the different um issues with fluoroquinolone so the tendon rupture tendon inflammation and rupture is definitely part of the box warning list um i've i think i've mentioned this recently probably in the last podcast actually but um i've seen this twice like in uh, yeah, I've, seen it. I've seen it a few times as well it's like man so it's it's definitely something yeah. to, to be aware of, especially in younger patients like alex was saying heart stuff in the older patients yeah um qt prolongation is an issue um, peripheral neuropathy they can last for months or even years after stopping the medication um, it can lower seizure threshold there's case reports of toxic um psychosis being caused by fluoroquinolones uh, it also can cause hypoglycemia as well as hyperglycemia. And so if a patient's uncontrolled diabetic, you know, you really got to be careful with that. And um, if you have a patient's going out of in the sun, same thing with photosensitivity. It can also cause musculoskeletal toxicity. There's just so many things that can go wrong with, with uh, fluoroquinolones. It also has an interaction with the multivalent cations, just like Doxy does. And, um, you know, it also some interactions with things like sulfonylureas, insulin, other QT prolonging drugs. So definitely not a clean class yeah. of drug, but don't, also don't effective. let it stop you from using it. Though. Right. If you just need to be aware, just be aware. And, uh, and also don't give Cipro. You notice we, we talked about <laughs> Moxie and Levo. Cipro is not a respiratory fluoroquinolone, does not cover strep pneumo with any sort of good, uh, reliable coverage. And so, yeah, the Levo and Moxie. All right, man. Anything else you can think of with uh, um, sinusitis? Is there anything that's pertinent I to mean, that? You know, I guess you know. Also, if, if you know, if it's if antibiotics have not worked, you know, look at you know possible fungal causes. Yeah, yeah immunocompromised patients. Um, you know, you know, definitely something to think about that it could be a fungus that's causing yeah, it. That's true, especially um, immunocompromised, yeah, right? Yeah. So yeah, that would be that would be a big one. That if they failed a few antibiotics and they are immunocompromised, I would be suspicious of a fungal infection. Yeah, no, that's a good one. Well, we should do a separate podcast episode on fungal. Yeah, you could. That'd be 
pretty, be a, yeah. I'd have to do a lot of research for that. Yeah. It's not, that's and, out of my wheelhouse. People, if you hear people are scared of fluoroquinolones, amphotericin. Yeah, yeah. Oh, man. For sure. Well, let's, uh, before we jump into pharyngitis, let's talk about uh, the password for the post-activity test. Password for today's episode is going to be ENT23. So ENT, all capital letters, 23, you'll, be, you'll have the awesome opportunity to take your post-activity multiple choice quiz and then get your hour of continuing education credit. Alex, you're going to take the quiz? Can you fail it once and then and get to take it? Not, it you're tries? not allowed to because you were one of the you're one of the uh, you know I'm an expert. You're one of the expert <laughs> panelists now, so you yeah, can't okay. fail it. Otherwise, you can't be an expert. I don't, I don't fail things. Well, that's debatable. But all right, pharyngitis. Um, we don't have too much time, and there's not much to go through this. Um, but strep throat, if it's bacterial, is this where we get the the slang term strep throat? Yeah. Um, most of the cases are viral again, mm-hmm. so influenza, coronavirus, rhinovirus. Um. Typically, nine, I mean, 90% of cases or more are going to be viral. Yeah. Bacterial, typically going to be streptococcus pyogenes, um, group A strep, mm-hmm. and um, that's where you get the name strep throat. It can be non-streptococcal uh, as well, though. It can be caused from um, Neisseria and gonorrhea. It can be Fusobacterium. Um, there's a couple other species that can also lead to it as well. But, you know, most of the time, strep pyogenes is, is the bacteria um, pathogen if it's if it's bacterial in nature, um, clinical features, I mean, thinking sore throat, fever, um, maybe some abdominal issues, nausea, vomiting, um, a tonsillar, exudates, yeah. cough, you cervical know. lymph nodes, and you can even get the rash, let's the, get that rash scarlet fever. Yeah. yeah. And, well, and, uh, what about a cough? Cause I've heard that cough suggests viral, not bacterial. Yeah. Is that, is that yeah. accurate? Yeah. So, so if there's, there's nasal sinus congestion. There's cough. Uh, less likely that it's bacterial. Yeah. yeah, yeah, Those are things that are moving you away from thinking it's strep throat. And the good thing with you know this situation is we actually have rapid antigen detection yeah. testing. So that's going to be there to detect the presence of group A strep. It's basically looking for a strep, uh, group A strep uh, carbohydrate on a throat swab, and if it yeah. detects that, then it gives you a positive you know, result. You still would want to do a throat culture as well, but that's going to take longer yeah. to actually get the results of, and that would really be something that you do in more like severe case or recurrent cases or things like that. I mean, most. I mean, if you, when do you send off for a culture ever? Usually, if it, second time, second if, if they're time. coming back, and 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 I, I was sure that was you know that it was strep. It was back, and I will say I think I think it's eighty percent sensitivity that that rapid strep test. AJ. Yeah, is oh, not here. Show up today. Oh, age is not okay. here with us. But He's I, too I busy. Think it's about eighty percent. So our kind of diagnostically, our rule of thumb is: if it looks like strep, treat mm. like strep. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, second time if they're coming back and they say it didn't really get better, um, then I'm uh, yeah. A lot of times I'm culturing after that. And you know the reason why we would want to you know be a little bit more. Um, I guess aggressive the second time around, possibly, or even especially at third time around, is because we we do want to prevent certain complications that can arise if you don't uh, mm-hmm. fix the infection. Yeah. So um, peritonsillar abscesses, um, mastoiditis, yeah, Rheuma- yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's um, the big one. That's the big one. Yeah, it, it's fairly rare, but I mean, definitely, yeah, could it, happen. Yeah, and the major- I think I was reading the majority of strep would clear would would self resolve in two weeks, but because, because of the of risk, those, and because they're pretty big ones, it's not like it's us. A mild complication. It's a pretty big one if it doesn't, if you do get a complication. And, you know, it also is one of those things where you want to reduce the transmission. Yeah. Spread of, it is very transmissible. And so if you have a patient, we may be sure, you maybe not worry about rheumatic fever in that particular patient, but maybe they're going to be around a small yeah. child who's already have, you know, sick with something. So the, the, the reduction in transmission is always a good thing. Um, but we also do want to keep in mind, antimicrobial stewardship and all that like always mm-hmm. so um you know especially in, in nowadays we, we also need to keep in mind COVID-19 symptoms can be so variable to, from patient to patient that we do want to do a yeah. COVID-19 test just to make sure that's not um part of the problem and then um you know from there we would want to rule out the viral yeah. side of things and like the cough and some of the other stuff like yeah. like he was mentioning um 
What about uh, like like um, oral ulcers, uh, things like that, hoarseness? Is that, that that's more viral as it's well, more right? Viral as well. Conjunctivitis, yeah. is it, yeah. that's present. Yeah, it's gonna be viral. And I'll sometimes they haven't. Sometimes in those viruses, like I mean, I've had several viruses, and sometimes it did start with a sore throat, but. When you ask the patients, you know, so your sore throat started at any point, did it improve a little? Like, like a lot of times at night it, in early in the mornings, it gets worse and then starts to it's improve throughout the day. Drip. Exactly. Whereas strep is, it, I mean, it comes it on and it hurt and it just keeps hurting. Yeah. yeah. That makes sense. And, you know, like we said earlier, you know, if you get a positive, um, or if you get a negative uh, rapid acting test, most of the time you would not send that you know off to be cultured. But you know if the patient is immunocompromised, um, I would send it. Yeah. yeah, something like that. You know, if they've had close contact with someone that um, has had acute um, yeah. rheumatic fever, you know things like that. Yeah, yeah we would want to maybe send it off just yeah. to make sure. Yeah, I'm also if they're coming back mono test. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, that's true. That's for mono too, if they're coming back, yeah. So when we got like supportive, you know, care, I mean, what do you, th- do you typically just ibuprofen, Tylenol? Yeah. Um, yeah, and then yeah. what about lozenges? Do you ever recommend those at all? Um, I, I don't just because I, I don't, I don't really ever do that if mm-hmm. when I've gotten it, but I mean, I know that I've, I've seen some of the ones out there and with those click chloroseptic like lozenges and yeah. things like that. Like Cepacol. Yeah. So the Benzocaine Cepacol lozenges are the ones I've used yeah. you know, in the past. Um, there's other brand names and stuff as well, but something I was reading that I thought was kind of interesting, I wasn't even aware of is they, so they have the same formulation of Benzocaine that's in the Benzocaine spray. Yeah. And that spray, I guess, had an FDA issued, um, public health advisory associated with it that was regarding the risk of um, uh, um, ethically I can't pronounce that word. I know what the word you're trying to say, dude. I can't either. (laughs) Methylmoglobinemia. Yeah, that one. Um, But there's been case reports of that occurring when someone's using the benzocaine spray, and since it's the same formulation, I guess technically that may be a concern, especially if you're not you know, able to dictate how much the patient's actually yeah. taking because it doesn't work. Those don't work. And that's one of the reasons why I don't do them is because you have to, you have to yeah. use them they so know often yeah, so yeah. Meant, because it wears off and, you know, but within an hour it's, you got to use another one. Yeah. And, and yeah. menthol cough drops are fine for yeah. most situations. Um, there's also like the, uh, um, exile resource I think is what it's called. It's a sucrets, um, the active ingredients in the Sucrets brand cough drops. Okay. But um, there, there was a study that looked, it was an industry-sponsored randomized controls trial, but it looked at the onset of action for those, and it was one to two, one to 10 minutes um, and lasted for up to two, two hours um, for patients. So it may last a little bit longer than some of the other ones, but um, for the most part, you know, ibuprofen, Tylenol, um, Tylenol if they have any kind of cardiovascular issues or kidney issues that you have to worry about. And uh, antibiotic-wise, we have our good old-fashioned uh, penicillin in most cases, amoxicillin. Um, it, I feel like, I mean, penicillin, though, you have to dose more frequently in a lot of cases. I mean, so... I, mean, I never use penicillin. Do, I was going to say, I don't think I've ever... I see... I've seen except for, except syphilis. For syphilis, yeah. yeah. <laughs> syphilis, and then I've seen dentists, right, for penicillin for some reason. Yeah, they will, yeah. They but still But it's do. like every six hours, you got to take the stupid thing. Yeah, it, yeah. So amoxicillin is usually the go-to. Um, you could technically do IM penicillin as well. I don't know that anybody would be that mean to give one of those yeah. giant injections. Yeah. But, you know, if the patient uh, is, you know, not allergic or anything, then, you know, one of those penicillin amoxicillins is a good way to start. If they do have a penicillin allergy, then, you know, you want to look at, you know, what kind of a reaction they had. Was it a, a mild non-IgE mediated then? And, and, and again, unless they had the, the identical side chain like we talked about, probably get away with, with using a cephalosporin. You can use cephalexin. You could use um, cephpodoxime, cephthenir, um, cephiroxime. Any of those are potential options. So basically your second and third generation may be your first with cephalexin. Uh, and the other option, if you are worried about the cephalosporin cross-reactivity, you know, and causing a uh, cross-sensitivity, I should say, reaction, then you can also consider a macrolide, uh, is assuming that you are in an area that does not have excessive macrolide resistance, yeah. which I feel like is becoming more and more prevalent anyway. But um, if that's the case, if there is, if the patient cannot take a macrolide because of resistance, then we also have our buddy clindamycin we can consider as well. 
So lots of different options, and I'll, uh, for those of you who are watching the video version, I'll show you my screen real quick, this kind of simple algorithm that UpToDate uses, but uh, kind of goes through and, and, again, starts with penicillin ideally and then gets more uh, broad spectrum from there. But, yeah, <coughs> um, and the other thing we didn't talk about, I caught right in front of the microphone. The, uh, the other thing it's we... It's not strep, dude. It's not strep. What if it is? That would be weird. Yeah, it, Sometimes, sometimes. I mean, I had strep and flu at the same time, which was horrible. Can I come? Can I, can you evaluate me at the ortho clinic? Yeah. Okay. Good. I'll I've just done, be in the I've waiting room. TRT in there. There you go. Perfect. Now, the, um, macrolides. Well, typically thinking azithromycin. You know, yeah. you could use clorithromycin, I guess, but the QT prolongation yeah. risk is worse with that. Um, you know, issues with the drug-drug interactions. You know, erythromycin and clorithromycin are definitely the two yeah. bigger culprits when it comes to those three A four. You know, in drug-drug uh, interactions. So, azithromycin uh, typically the go-to for most patients um, has the least amount of GI upset, whereas clothromycin, especially erythromycin, have more. So, azithromycin mm -hmm. is usually a good one to to stick with. But again, the resistance rates are something you definitely have to make sure you're yeah. you're not running into. So, yeah, anything uh, else with that? It's kind of short and sweet. No, I mean, no, not. I mean. Cool. I mean, yeah, diagnostically, I mean, when you are looking at the throat, you always want to make sure that uvula is midline in that throat because if it's not, they need to be sent out quick. What can that, what can cause like that? Peritonsillar abscess. Okay. Yeah, which is one of those big, that's the one you don't want to miss. Yeah. So anyway, so if you're not a pharmacist and you're listening to this, like you make sure that you document if sore throat is on a complaint, make sure you document that the, uh, that uvula is midline. Well, that's probably a good thing for even pharmacists because yeah, there's I mean, a lot of pharmacists that do point of care testing for stress. Well, yeah, so that would be a big thing. Yeah. That, that needs to be... Um, and then also when you're asking your question, questions, you need to differentiate between like difficult difficulty swallowing versus painful to swallow because there's just a big difference. If right. there's a difficulty, then you might want to like send out to get imaging Where or they're something. choking and like yeah. dysphagia. And you can even, you know... Um, I, I I knew a um, an ENT told me we'll have them have them. I called them up and they're like we'll have them drink some drink something in front of you and if if it starts coming back out then send them on over to the ER. That's a good yeah strategy. Yeah, um, yeah, that's good. I like that. So yes, make sure do you view those midline. Yes, for those of you who are doing exams. Big one. So thanks for being here, man. Appreciate yeah, man. it. Thanks. So thanks I, for having me. So now that you've seen it, you're going to come. Because you've done this one time. I think it was a patient case or something. Yeah. It, but, it, it, something crashed on us. It wasn't even. No. You just it got, my voice. You just oh, because you didn't do the video version. Is that what you're upset about? Well, now, now you're on video. So we're good. Oh, We've made up for dude. it. You'll say, so dude, something happened. Okay, dude. No, that's it. I won't give any credit I'm, for I'm it. just going to delete you completely <laughs> out of the episode. <laughs> just, there's, no, there's just me talking. You just you cover my face. Makes no sense. I just ask a question. Just keep on talking. But, uh, yeah, so since we've been talking about antibiotics this episode, um, for those of you who have not checked out a uh, longtime friend of the show, sponsor of the show, Pearls, um, the new drug information app that's, I shouldn't even say new at this point, it's been around for a few years, and it's growing tremendously with the amount of content. Um, since we're talking about antibiotics today, I'll show you uh, a preview of the their chart that they put out. They made a Venn diagram for antibiotic spectrum of activity, and this is just one of, of many uh, different charts they have on their, their website, as, long as, as well as, uh, you know, drugs, you know, regular drug information uh, that you'd be looking for, um, calculus calculators, different charts and tables, um, pharmacotherapy algorithms, all kinds of good stuff. So if you um, want to check out Pearls, go to www.pearls, and that's P-Y-R-L-S dot com slash core consult Rx. Um, put in your email address and you can get a free, uh, the free membership and access to the free version of the app. And if you like it, you can always upgrade. If not, no big deal. And you'll get some, some pharmacotherapy, uh, guides that you, algorithms and handout sheets that you can use um, for diabetes and some other things uh, when you sign up anyway so totally for free and if you want more like traditional style lecture material uh, definitely check out the patreon um, it's where i upload uh, the, the lectures and um, video lectures and the powerpoint slides for like my pharmacotherapy lectures that i do for my pa students and um, you know it's it's a little bit more uh the boring you know lecture style but for those of you who are more a type and don't like our tangents and all that probably suits you a little bit better anyway but uh check that out um and then for those of you who are 
signing up for the Patreon and you subscribe for a whole year, um, one of our other newest sponsors, um, High Powered Medicine, has agreed to give a digital copy of his book, um, High Powered Medicine Landmark Clinical Trials Review, and it's a second edition. And um, it's written by Dr. Alex Poppin, and he is uh, he is a good name, and yeah, uh, good name. he's given us the opportunity to give away a digital copy of his book uh, if you sign up for Patreon and pay for a year up front. It's like it's like thirty dollars. You get all the Patreon slides and lectures for. Won't a year. even do a dent, guys. Just do it. Just do it. It's it helps us. It's my um, motto in life. Dude. Yeah, it's Just how we can it. afford to keep people like Alex coming in the show every once in a while. So yeah, I didn't get paid for this. So yeah, not even a little bit. That, yeah. And it's uh, so a big thanks to Alex Poppin for um, allowing us to work with him as well. Um, and also, always a big thanks to FreeCE.com for continuing to partner with us. And uh, if you have any questions, then you can reach us on emails. We'll both be in the show notes for Cole and myself. Um, and then also, you know, any of the social media platforms. Um, you can text me at the number in the show notes as well. And uh, I will do my best to get back to you in a somewhat timely manner. Um, I, sorry for those of you who I text back a month later and <laughs> answer your question at that point. But... Appreciate it. Thank you guys so it's much for like listening. I text him. It is, yeah, well, that's because I'm busy. Uh, thanks to Alex, man, for coming on the show. Yeah, no and problem. Thanks for having me, man. We will see you guys in the next one. Have a good night.